the Temple and the Church's mission. Thank you. What's well, uh, good to be here, and um, it's been good to already meet uh, not only uh, the pastor but uh, some some of you. Um, what I thought I would do when I was asked to uh, speak on in some way about my book the the church and the temples the the temple and the church's mission is really just to see if I could maybe summarize 400 pages in um, uh, the time we have for this evening so uh, here we go if you have your Bibles uh, if you don't have your Bibles so you should still be able to follow along because I'm going to have some overheads on some various aspects of what I'm speaking on this evening, but um, if you do have your Bibles, uh, uh, it might help at some point. I'm going to begin by reading part of Revelation 21. Um, It's going to be our text at the beginning, and then at the very end we're going to come back to this uh, this passage. Um, So why don't we uh, open, if we could... uh, In a word of prayer, we're going to read the text of Scripture first, and then we'll open in prayer. I want to read verses 1 to 3, and verses 9 through 12, and verses uh, chapter 22, 1 to 3. Just read a few uh, sections. Uh, Beginning at 21.1 of Revelation, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his peoples, and God himself shall be among them. And then we'll skip on down to verse 9. As this vision continues, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone, a stone of crystal clear jasper. It had a great and high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, names were written on them which are those the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel. And uh, then we get a, a description of the city in verses 13 all the way down to verse 27, and especially in uh, uh, the latter part, verses 17, for example, through 21. It's about all the jewels and the gold and the silver uh, of the city. And in the remainder of chapter 21, it talks about the, the, the nations who are coming into the city. And then this vision actually concludes in chapter 22, verse 1 and following. He showed me a great river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there will no longer be any curse in the throne of God, and the Lamb will be in it, and His bondservants shall serve Him. Uh, Actually, there are a couple more verses, but um, I think that will serve our purposes. Let's ask God to bless our time in His Word this evening. Father, we do ask that You would help us to understand Your Word, especially this vision here at the end of uh, the book of Revelation, written by Your servant John. May we remember the promise of the blessing of this book in 
the beginning of the first chapter, that blessed is the one reading and the ones hearing the words of the prophecy of this book and keeping the things having been written in it. Lord, bless us. In Jesus' name, Amen. Maybe you read the book, maybe you read part of the book, maybe many of you, most of you haven't read it at all, so I'm going to function as if you haven't read the book, um, and I'm going to try to summarize the book as best I can. Uh, some of my students say that um, some of my lectures are like getting on the, uh, on the back of an uh, interpretative bull, that is a bull, and, and, and I, I go so fast, I go this way and that, so hang on. Um, because to accomplish the job uh, uh, will be a bit difficult, and I probably won't finish, but um, I'll do my best. There's a problem here in Revelation 21. Why does John see a new heavens and earth in verse 1, um, and then in the whole rest of the vision, we, re- we read most of it, he doesn't see really a new heavens and earth. Um, he sees only a city in the shape of a temple that's garden-like. That's what he sees. Now, some may say, well, that's the new heavens and earth, or that's, it's in the new heavens and earth. Uh, maybe so, but that's what he sees. He's, so he sees a new heavens and earth, and then he sees a city in the shape of a temple that's garden-like. Now, uh, all I want to do is, is underscore that he does see a temple, and I want you to notice some of this. First of all, that it's garden-like is clear from chapter 22. And in verse 2, where it says uh, there were 12 kinds of fruit uh, uh, yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Uh, probably imagery from the Garden of Eden. So it's garden-like, but it's a city that's garden-like, but it's especially in the shape of a temple. In fact, there are all kinds of allusions here from Ezekiel 40 to 48, which is one of the grand visions, prophetic visions of uh, the end-time temple. For example, notice uh, chapter 21 and verse 10, and uh, where it says, He carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain. Well, that just is what happens to Ezekiel at the beginning of his vision. He goes to a high mountain in order to see Jerusalem. Likewise, in uh, verse 11, where it says that this city, having the glory of God, that's right out of Ezekiel chapter 43 and verse 2. Likewise, in verse 12, uh, where it talks about the twelve gates. That comes right out of Ezekiel 48:31, and, and on into the beginning of chapter 2. Um, the, the reference in uh, chapter 22 in verse 1, uh, a river of the water of life, again comes right out of Ezekiel 47:1, where this water's coming out of this end-time temple, and uh, it's, uh, it's, it's growing deeper and wider. Um, it's the, the very allusion here in verse 2 where it talks about the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Uh, the leaves of the trees uh, along the sides of the river in Ezekiel 47 were for healing. So the, the, this temple in Ezekiel is referred to again and again. We're, we're talking about a, not just a city, a city in the shape of a temple here that is garden-like. In fact, that, that it is a temple, and I just want to enforce that upon you. Uh, look at verse 16. The city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as the width. And he measured the city with the rod, 1,500 miles. Now, listen to the end of verse 16. Its length and width and height are equal. That's an allusion back to 
1 Kings 6 and verse 20, where the Holy of Holies, quote, the length and the breadth and the height of the Holy of Holies were equal. So all I'm trying to do is underscore John Singh, yeah, it's a city, but it's a pretty unusual city. It's a, sh- a city that is in the shape of uh, a temple, especially the Holy of Holies, that was in the temple, and yet it is garden-like. So, what's going on? Does John see, verse 1, I saw new heavens and earth, and then in it he sees a city in the shape of a temple that's garden-like. Is that Maybe that's all we need to deal with here, and that's not really a problem. However, um, why is there such a focus on this city in the shape of a holy of holies that's garden-like? In fact, it's apparent that he does not see the city and temple as just one little place in the new creation. I think he's equating the new creation with a city that's in the shape of a temple that's garden-like. Why would I say that? Well, uh, if you have your Bibles, and if you don't, you'll have to follow me even more carefully. But in chapter 21, in verse 27, it says, Nothing unclean can enter into the city. And then in chapter 22, verses 14 to 15, it says, Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons, the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices life. So outside the gates of the city are these unbelievers. Pretty uh, brash statements about the unbelievers. Dogs, they're called. Um, Idolaters. Murderers. People who love and practice lying. In fact, it's apparent that right outside the city uh, is something else. Chapter 21, verse 8, the same list of people, but where are they? But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So, only the redeemed are inside the city, which is shaped like a temple. And right outside the walls are these unbelievers, which, by the way, we'll see tomorrow, are not just pagan unbelievers that have never been in a church. Many of these people have been in churches, but we'll address that tomorrow. These are unbelievers outside the city, and, and, and of course, they're in the lake of fire. So the question arises, in the new heavens and earth, that's, that's, that's what John sees, are we saying that there's kind of a stronghold where the believers are, and outside of it, in the new heavens and earth, is a lake of fire and a bunch of unbelievers. If that's what we're saying, we've got a huge, huge theological problem that in the pristine new heavens and earth, there are unbelievers in the lake of fire? I don't think so. I don't think hell is in the new heavens and earth. It's in another dimension. And my point is this. The new heavens and earth that John sees is equated with the city in the shape of a temple. And outside of it are the unbelievers. They're outside the new creation. So what John is doing, he's equating the new heavens and earth with a city in the shape of a holy of holies that's garden-like. Now that's weird. Maybe some of you have seen Star Trek or some other sci-fi movie. The spaceship is in space. And they're coming upon, um, well, in Star Wars, it's round, but it's a city. Um, but just picture it as square. That's what we're talking about. It looks like a sci-fi picture, though in this case, 
uh, it is, I believe it actually is, a figurative depiction of the new heavens and earth. But this is very strange. Why equate the new heavens and earth with a city in the shape of the Holy of Holies that is garden-like? To further underscore that these are equated, I want you to look again at chapter 21 and verse 2. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God and made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. That's what he sees. Verse 3, he hears. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. He'll dwell among them. They'll be his peoples. Now, in Revelation, there's an interpretative pattern that you might look for when you're reading the book of Revelation, and you probably have seen it. When you see a vision, and then there's a declaration after it, the declaration interprets the vision. In fact, sometimes it can be the other way. You might hear a declaration and the following vision will interpret it. Let's remember probably one of the best examples of that. You remember the statement in Revelation 5 where um, uh, John says um, uh, he hears that the lion from the tribe of Judah has overcome. lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome. Um, then the next verse. Next verse. And I saw a lamb standing as having been slain. The idea is this. How does the Messianic lion, Jesus, overcome? As it's, he, he hears, in verse 5, in verse 6, by being slain. It's ironic, overcoming. I think the same pattern is here. John sees a new heavens and earth. Well, he sees the city in verse 2. And what is it? Verse 3. It's the tabernacle of God. In fact, I think... It interprets the vision in verse 1. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. What is that new heaven and earth? It's the new Jerusalem, verse 2. And then you get a declaration. The new heavens and earth, the new Jerusalem are also the tabernacle. And so, why? This, 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 this intrigued me. I was, I was writing a commentary on the book of Revelation. At the end, um, I, I, I thought this is very strange because I came to the conclusion that John was equating the new heavens and earth with this city in the shape of the Holy of Holies that's garden like. Why is he doing it? He doesn't uh, see a new heavens and earth, and then he, he, he doesn't describe the rolling valleys and the forests and the tundra and the rivers and so forth and so on. Uh, for the most part, I mean, he does see a river, um, but that's, that's part of a, uh, a garden. So, um, why is this? Why does he equate the new heavens and earth with a city in the shape of the Holy of Holies that's garden-like? Well, there's so many allusions here to the Old Testament. And some of the allusions go all the way back to Genesis 1. And so I thought, well, what I ought to do is go back to the Old Testament because I believe the New Testament writers use the Old Testament uh, uh, in a way that helps uh, understand what they're saying. They use the Old Testament in a way that helps them, that, 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 uh, helps them to explain uh, the first and the second coming of the church and what's going on during the church age. Now, there's some uh, New Testament scholars that don't believe that, and some pastors that New Testament writers just rip the Old Testament out of, their, out of its context. Um, I don't think that's the case, and I hope this evening will be an example, uh, one such example of that. So what I wanted to do, I, wanted, I said, I've got to go back to the Old Testament. I'm going to start in Genesis because the Garden of Eden is there, and there are some allusions to that uh, in this vision. So, uh, we've got to go back all the way to try to... What we're trying to do is discover, this is bizarre. Why is John doing this? Some attribute it to the irrationality of an apocalyptic visionary. You know, our dreams don't have to make sense, do they? Well, why do biblical dreams have to make sense? Of course, God's behind them. Um, that might be one reason they should make sense. But, um, at any rate... 
Um, we're going to go back to the Garden of Eden. And if you have your Bibles, we're going to go back to uh, Genesis chapter 2. And uh, what we're going to see is the Garden of Eden, it's my uh, radical statement, the Garden of Eden was the first temple. You say, what? I thought it was a garden. Well, it's an arboreal temple, a, a garden tree-like temple. And so the, the, the burden uh, uh, upon me is to try to say, why would anybody think the Garden of Eden was a temple? If this is the case, then um, it will go a long way to explaining what Revelation uh, chapter uh, 21 all the way to 22.5 is doing. So I'm going to contend that the Garden of Eden, uh, uh, it sounds like a temple, it looks like a temple, uh, it feels like a temple and smells like a temple, and so I'm going to finally conclude it probably is a temple. Um, we're going to look at a number of angles as to why I think this is the case. And so I'm going to put uh, my points up here in this, this order. Um, oh, wonderful. It's working great. What happened? Hmm. What happened here? There we go. Thank you. So, the Garden of Eden is the first uh, tabernacle or temple or sacred place. And the first point I want to make is the garden is the unique place of God's presence. So what we're going to do is we're going to present a number of things that, 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 that associate it with a temple. And at the end we're going to say the cumulative effect is this is a temple. Um, first of all, uh, this was the place uh, where uh, the first human beings were. It was the unique place of God's presence, just as later the Holy of Holies was the unique place of God's presence. Moses had to go into the tabernacle, remember, to hear God speak, and he would communicate with God. And likewise, it is with the Garden of Eden. In fact, the same Hebrew verb, remember in chapter 3 when it says, God was walking back and forth in the cool of the day. Uh, for those of you who know Hebrew, uh, it is a hithpael form pronounced hithalek. God was hithalaking. He was walking back and forth in the garden. That exact same Hebrew verbal form is used uh, three other places uh, in the Old Testament to refer to God walking back and forth in the tabernacle. Uh, Leviticus 26.12, Deuteronomy 23.14, 2 Samuel 7, 6-7. So it's the place of God's unique presence. You say, well, okay, I mean, uh, even if it wasn't a temple, still wouldn't it have been the unique place of God's presence? Fair enough. Um, but let's keep moving. The garden is the place of the first priest. Adam, I believe, was the first priest in human history. Genesis 2.15 says this, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. The two Hebrew words for cultivate and keep can easily, and usually are, when they occur together, translated as serve and guard. They are not gardening terms, in other words. It refers to serving and garden. Garden, when the words occur together, without exception. They either refer to Israelites, for example, ten times, serving and guarding God's Word, or to priests who serve God in the temple and guard the temple from unclean things. And yet, here it still seems like there may be a gardening nuance to it, even though this is not a nuance anywhere else when the two words are used together in Hebrew. The words are Abad and Shamir in Hebrew. Um, 
And so, probably, what's going on here, when you look at other temples in the ancient Near East, it's very interesting. They had gardens in them, and part of the priestly service was to keep the garden. And uh, I think one reason that was the case, it's very interesting. Why would they have gardens and temples? I think it's because it reflects the ancient temple of Eden, and there was some kind of common grace understanding of this in the ancient world. Some kind, of, Just as the image of God was distorted in people, but they still had it. So they had some kind of distorted sense of the dwelling place of God. And, uh, and so likewise, probably the first term in verse 15 to, uh, uh, um, to, cult, to, to serve it literally, it could be a gardening term. In fact, the same term is used in chapter 3, and it is a gardening term. Uh, when the cherub takes over, uh, one of the cherubim takes over Adam's role in verse 23, chapter 3, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to abad the garden, to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. And so probably it is gardening here, but nevertheless, we've got to remember when these words are used together, they're worship words, serving and obeying, and probably they have that flavor to it. They have that, that, that atmosphere around it, and especially it makes sense because uh, gardening was a very priestly thing in the ancient world. It was a part of a temple. So probably, even if this is a gardening term, this is priestly language of service. And um, Now, even uh, the uh, phrase here, very interesting when it says Adam was placed into the garden, it's not the typical word for place. Uh, the word is the word actually from where Noah's uh, uh, name comes from. It's a, it's a Hebrew verb, uh, nuach, and it's actually God caused Adam to rest. And when that same form is used elsewhere, it refers to placing things into a temple, uh, furniture into a temple, that sort of thing. So I think that, that, that Adam is, is the first sacred figure serving God, the first priest. But there's something further showing that he was a priest, and that is that uh, the garden was the place of the first girding cherubim. They take over his role when he sins. He, he uh, 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 is rejected as a priest. He's cast out of the garden. And uh, you'll notice in Genesis 3.24 that it says, God drove the man out and feast of the garden of Eden. He stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction, to guard the way to the tree of life. To guard the way. So Adam was still to cultivate, to serve, but now they guard. Probably the idea he was a gardener in a priestly role of keeping the garden of the sacred temple, but he was to guard as well. And what would he need to guard against? Um, remember, nothing unclean was supposed to come into a temple, and uh, including snakes. And so um, uh, the likelihood is, is that he was to guard against anything unclean. And there were unclean things. Uh, there was a serpent. Um, Later, Israel's priests were to guard the temple. The same word for guard is used. It's a shamir in Hebrew. The pronunciation isn't that important, but it's important to know that the same Hebrew word is used for priest in the temple, guarding the temple. Uh, quote, they were to keep watch, that is, guard at the gates of the temple, so that no one should enter who was unclean. They were called gatekeepers with that same uh, uh, verbal idea 
of, of, of guarding. Uh, they were uh, they were guarders of the gates. Nehemiah eleven nine, Second Chronicles twenty three nineteen. Their role probably became memorialized in in the later temple. Remember the the two angelic beings around the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy of Holies. Probably is an echo, a reflection of those two first guarding angelic beings in the Garden of Eden, which was God's first arboreal garden like temple. Um, the garden was the place of the first arboreal lampstand. A number of scholars believe that um, the tree of life in the Garden of Eden was the model for the lampstand placed directly outside the Holy of Holies, remember, in the holy place of Israel's temple. And if you remember from Exodus 25, this was not a lampstand. I remember I was in a Greek Orthodox basilica a few years ago, and they actually had this lamp, two lampstands uh, to, to sort of... Uh, uh, be a reflection of the lampstands in Israel's temple because the basilicas are a model of Israel's temple in Greece. And um, they were just classic lampstands with light bulbs. But that was not the lampstand. The lampstand looked like an almond tree, according to Exodus 25. It was a tree. And um, uh, and, and, and there, were, there were flames on the top of it that represented the, 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 the living light of God. But the garden... Um, was uh, the first sanctuary is evident from the fact when we look at the later temple, it's very interesting when you look at the holy place, it's got all this garden imagery. The cedar, uh, there's cedar work that uh, uh, has palm trees and all kinds of flowers. Uh, For example, 1 Kings describing Solomon's temple uh, at chapter 6 says, quote, there was cedar carved in the shape of gourds and open flowers. Another one, on, quote, on the walls and temple roundabout and on the wood doors of the inner sanctuary were, quote, carvings of palm trees, open flowers, and cherubim. Where do you get garden-like uh, vegetation, uh, fauna and flora, and cherubim? I know of only one place, and that is Eden. Beneath the heads of the two pillars that goes, that's in, uh, forms the porch going into the holy place, quote, were carved pomegranates. That's First Kings 7. Furthermore, we um, find that the garden was the uh, source of uh, the first source of water. In fact, uh, Israel's later temples, it's interesting, they were all on a mountain, they all faced east, and water flowed from them. That's true with Eden as well. Remember? Uh, actually, in, uh, you have Eden. And the garden by it, water flows out from it, and it's apparently on a hill. In fact, Ezekiel 28 says it's on a mountain. And it faces east, according to chapter 3 and uh, verse 24. It says, And east of the Garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword to guard the way, the tree of life. So again, that's a further similarity. In fact, the garden... Um, was the uh, first place where um, wisdom was to be found. You remember in Israel's temple, you had in the Ark of the Covenant, the law, which Proverbs refers to as wisdom. And of course, in the Garden of Eden, uh, you have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Touching either one would cause death. Again, are these just coincidental similarities? Uh, am I being a parallelomaniac here? Um, 
And just as there were three sections in Israel's later temple, the garden had three sections. Remember Israel's temple? Holy of Holies, holy place, and courtyard. Well, you have Eden, which is the source of the waters. Then you have the garden. By the way, the garden is not Eden. The garden is adjacent to it, according to Genesis 2. And then outside the garden is the uninhabitable territory. Now, in the light of these numerous similarities, and I, I, I had been convinced just because of these, that, that, yes, this was the first sanctuary in Scripture. And then I ran across a passage in Ezekiel, chapter 28, that is about the Garden of Eden. It says it was on a mountain, and it talks about a being who had on priests bejeweled robing. Some think it's Satan. I think it's Adam. It talks about how that being is cast out. And uh, it says, You defiled your sanctuaries, plural. Now that word sanctuaries refers in the plural commonly to the temple. Because the temple complex was at least three sanctuaries, wasn't it? Holy of Holies, Holy Place, and Courtyard. But even in the Holy Place, there were little rooms. It was commonly called sanctuary. So Ezekiel 28 actually uses the typical phrase for the temple, the sanctuaries. Sometimes you'll talk about the sanctuaries of Israel. Early Judaism, which my wife always reminds me, is not in the canon. Uh, uh, but in early Judaism, about 160 B.C., they saw the Garden of Eden as the Holy of Holies, according to Jubilees 8.19. It just shows that very early on, the Jews had understood this as well. So, I think it, it smells like a temple, it tastes like a temple, it... Looks like a temple. I think it is a temple. And not only was the guard, was Adam to guard the sanctuary, but he was to su- subdue the earth, according to Genesis 1.28. Remember? To, to, to subdue and rule, to increase and multiply and fill the earth. And uh, in this regard, it's very important to uh, remember what his uh, uh, role was. Just briefly, let's remind ourselves that he was in the image of God. By the way, what do you do with the images and temples go together? Well, they sure did in the ancient Near East. You always had an idol image in in the holy place uh, of a pagan temple. But Adam is the living image of God. He's caused to rest as a part of the temple furniture. In this case, uh, a living priestly kingly image of God. So God blesses them. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And by the way, this is not just filling the earth with physical progeny. These are image bearers. So they're filling the earth with people who are going to fill the earth with the glory of God. That's the idea. It's not just a cultural mandate. It's a spiritual cultural mandate, you see. And um, there are other ways here we could talk about um, uh, Adam being in the image of of God, I quote a colleague of mine, a guy by the name of John Walton. I have to remind myself to quote him here. Um, he says he says this in his commentary uh, uh, in, on, in, uh, on Genesis in the uh, um, NIV application series in Zondervan. He says, um, uh, leading up to what he's about to say, I, I make the following contact, contact comments that, that that Adam was to manage the garden. He was a, he was a, uh, to guard it. From the threat of unclean things entering in to corrupt it, um, certainly it would involve his teaching uh, his children what God had 
told them. Certainly, it would mean keeping spiritual order so spiritual chaos would not come in. Certainly, he was to keep out unclean things. And Walton adds this, if people were going to fill the earth according to Genesis 1, we must conclude they were not intended to stay in the garden in a static situation. Yet moving out of the garden would appear a hardship since the land outside the garden was not as hospitable as that inside the garden. Otherwise, the garden would not be distinguishable from that outside. Perhaps then, he says, we should surmise that people were gradually supposed to extend the garden as they went about subduing and ruling. Extending the garden would extend the food supply as well as extend the sacred space. Now, what this means is that Adam was to widen in his progeny were to widen the boundaries of the garden, not just geographically, but they were, as they did that, the glorious presence of God was to spread out over the earth as well as His progeny or in His image reflecting God's glory also. They were to do this until Eden covered the whole earth. This meant the presence of God, which was limited to Eden, was to be extended throughout the whole earth. Now, we could just stop right here. We've got a lot more to go. Not, not going to finish. Um, but right here we can just stop. And I think we can answer two-thirds of our question. Why does John equate the new heavens and earth with a city in the shape of a temple that's garden-like? Now, I don't think we can answer why it's a city. But can anybody tell me? Why would John be equating the new heavens and earth with a temple that's garden-like in the light of what I've said? It's risky to do that, ask a question like that. I'll let it be rhetorical. Because that was a commission of Adam. Adam, if he had been faithful in his progeny, being in the perfect image of God, would have extended the... Uh, uh, space of the garden until it covered the earth in which God's glory, His glorious presence would have covered the earth so that the garden and the temple would be equal to the heavens and earth, right? Right. You follow me? Not sure. Don't depress me. All right. Um, as we know, Adam was not faithful and obedient, so that not only was the garden not extended throughout the earth, Adam was cast out. And after Adam's fall and expulsion from the garden temple, mankind became worse and worse, and only a small remnant of the human race were faithful. God eventually destroys the whole earth by a flood, and um, only Noah and his immediate family are spared. Now, um, it's just possible that there may be some intimation that God began a new temple building structure in Noah's time. But if so, it wasn't completed, but immediately halted because of Noah's and his son's disobedience. Meredith Klein has suggested, uh, and I just, I'm not going to try to demonstrate this, but he suggested that the ark itself replaced Eden. Why? Well, first of all, uh, the, the ark was in three parts. Uh, like the later temple. Second of all, in Eden, the ark, uh, there are these detailed architectural plans. And the only time, really, 98% of the time you find architectural plans in the Bible, it's temple building plans. That's very interesting. 
the ark with the animals coming in is the first time where you get a distinction between clean and unclean animals. And that especially becomes important for temple worship later in Israel. Noah even functioned like a priest. Remember when he comes out of the ark uh, that he uh, uh, makes an offering and a sacrifice? Uh, it's even called a, a, an aroma of rest, intriguingly. Um, and in fact, the word in the Greek Old Testament uh, for uh, the ark uh, is the same word for the ark of the covenant in the holy of holies. So, uh, it, it may be that uh, this was the transitional sacred place of God during the flood, but they fail. And, um, well, then, then, then what happens after Noah and his sons fail? Well, commentators apparently have not noticed something that is very, very interesting. Um, that the Adamic commission, remember Genesis 1.28, rule, subdue, increase, multiply, and fill the earth. That is, with image bearers reflecting the glory of God. It's not, so a lot of people say it's only a cultural commission. No, it's cultural, spiritual, cultural, theological um, but the Adamic Commission is repeated in direct connection with what looks to be the building of small sanctuaries. Just as the Genesis 1.28 Commission was initially to be carried out by Adam in a localized place, enlarging the borders of the arboreal sanctuary, that's how he was begin, to begin to carry out Genesis 1.28 in a temple context as a king priest, so it appears to be not accidental that the restatement of the commission to Israel's patriarchs results in the following. And uh, I'm going to show you those recommissions. Uh, in other words, what I'm saying is that Genesis 1.28, not only is repeated to Noah very explicitly in chapter 9, verses 1 and following, twice, and he fails, he fails in carrying out the commission, but it's applied to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And uh, in, in all these places, I'm not going to read them. Uh, maybe in discussion we can talk about it. But in Genesis 12 and 17 uh, and 22 to Abraham, um, Genesis 1:28 is reapplied to them. I mean, just notice the language uh, here in, in Genesis 12. I bless you, be a blessing, I will bless. Where does blessing come from? Genesis 1, all the families of the earth, uh, the idea of filling the earth, and it goes on, I'll greatly multiply your seed, etc. Um, and then Jacob, uh, the same thing. Um, well, Isaac and Jacob and all these passages. Um, now, where you have the reiteration of the Genesis 128 commission, well, you had it with Noah, and it was in the context of, if, if the ark is like a temple, in the context of a temple there. But to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it's again in the context of garden-like temples. Let me explain what I mean. God, when uh, Isaac, when Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob get this repeated commission applied to them, a repeated commission from Adam in Genesis 1.28, here are the six things that always happens when that occurs. God appears to them. Secondly, they pitch a tent. Now, that word for tent in Hebrew is a word commonly used for the tent of the testimony, for example. Repeatedly in the book of Exodus and throughout the Pentateuch and elsewhere. 
And, and the Hebrew, the English word is skene, which is the word for the tabernacle as well. It occurs on a mountain. They build altars and worship God. Uh, typically, they, they call out in the name of the Lord. Probably gave sacrificial offerings. The place where these activities occur is often located at Bethel. What's Bethel? The house of God. There's the presence of a tree in these locations. Why? Why a tree? It's very specifically mentioned. Like all of these things together, it's interesting, the combination of these six elements occurs elsewhere in the Old Testament only in describing Israel's tabernacle or temple. Why the tree? Probably because it's an echo of Eden. And Israel's later to lampstand in the form of an almond tree, likewise, is like that. In other words, the patriarchs are building little temples, just as Adam began. They're starting over again, you see. They're like small new creations in a certain sense. Not exactly. But they're, they're Adam-like figures and being given the same commission. As Adam. Now, what's different with Abraham is, with Adam and Noah, it's only a command. It's a commission. With Abraham, it continues to be a, can, a, a command, but it's also a promise now. Some, some, one of their descendants is going to fulfill it, but it takes a while. They keep uh, sinning and they disobey, but there's still that promise. For example, I want to give you an example of, of, of one such episode where you have... Um, a patriarch here. Uh, here's Abraham, for example. Um, I'm not gonna, because of time, I'm going to go on to Jacob. This is amazing. This is Genesis 20, 28. God speaking to him. The land on which you lie, I'll give it to you and your seed. Your descendants will spread out like the dust of the earth, and you'll spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And in you and your seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. You see, why are they spreading out to all points of the compass? Why are they spreading out? Because this is a little temple building episode. And the point is, this little temple that that, uh, um, Jacob is building here is to point to something that is to expand. And then God says, I am with you. It's one of the the reiterations. You didn't have that with Adam and Noah. But now with the patriarchs, he starts saying, I'm with you. There's a redemptive element that's going to really stick here, and it'll eventually um, uh, find fruition in Jesus. Uh, Jacob says, Lord, the Lord is in this place. This is a unique place. This is the house of God. It's a little temple. The gate of heaven. Remember that the uh, Israel's Holy of Holies was literally the place where heaven in a special revelatory way came down to earth. It, it was the extension of heaven to earth. And so here, um, he sets up a stone as a pillar, pours oil on its top. The place is Bethel, house of God. If God will be with me, the stone is God's house. He even gives a tent, which has to do with giving a tent uh, as a part of the support for the temple later on. So all these, these little patriarchal, uh, what I call miniature, inchoate uh, temple building activities. My wife's an artist, but I'm not... Um, you have these little episodes, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, and they're on these mountains. They're, they're replicating Adam on the mountain, okay, in the garden. They're little garden sanctuaries. And they're pointing to something bigger. Just as Adam should have uh, made his garden bigger. And what is it pointing to? I think it's pointing, 
pointing at first to the big temple in Jerusalem. There's going to be a bigger temple in Jerusalem. And, uh, and then, of course, we're going to see that temple is to grow even bigger. Now, notice this. This is very interesting. That I think that, that, that what I've explained to you, really, that these patriarchal episodes actually are temple-building episodes, is, I think, demonstrated from the same pattern with David. Look at this. David begins the preparations on a mountain, Mount Moriah. One of the little small temple-building episodes uh, where Abraham and Isaac were. And he offered Isaac up, in fact. David experiences a theophany. The angel of the Lord standing between heaven and earth, just as Jacob had in uh, Genesis 28. At the site, David built an altar to the Lord. He offered burnt offerings, and he called to the Lord. Same language. And then, David calls the place the house of God. Why? Because this is the site of Israel's future temple to be prepared by David. In other words, this time it's really going to be extended. It's, this little foundation-laying episode of the temple is, uh, that, that David is doing is going to finally be finished and enlarged by Solomon. And so, uh, the, we then do get the temple, which this isn't the best picture of the temple, but it's an accurate one. And... Um, so what we find is that Israel's tabernacle in the wilderness and then later the temple was a reestablishment of the Garden of Eden sanctuary, a realization of what the little patriarchal sanctuary building episodes pointed to. Now it's on Mount Zion, on another mountain. And so we've got the Holy of Holies, the holy place, and then the courtyard. We'll talk about that in just a moment. For the first time, God's unique presence with His people is explicitly called a temple. Now, Ezekiel, of course, called uh, uh, the Garden of Eden a temple, but this is repeatedly called a temple and very, very explicitly so. And we've already seen how many similarities there are with the temple and the Garden of Eden. Likely, the temple was to be a kind of model, explicitly, in various ways, recalling the Garden of Eden. But there's something else that's true of the Eden temple which I've not yet mentioned, and it becomes more explicit with Israel's temple. And that is this, that the temple served as a little earthly model of God's temple in heaven, which would eventually come down and fill the whole earth. There's something very interestingly said in Psalm 78 and verse 69. It says this. It says something amazing about Israel's temple. I'd never noticed it until I started to put on my temple lenses. And, uh, and then it sucked everything in, and I came across this passage. It says this in Psalm 78, 69. God, quote, built the sanctuary like the heavens. He built the sanctuary like the earth, which He's founded forever. The sanctuary, in some way, is a little model of the heaven and earth. That's weird. Does that look like a model of heaven and earth? It doesn't to me. But the same thing is said in Exodus 25, uh, 8 through 9 and 40, where it says that Moses saw the pattern of the temple in heaven. And he made the tabernacle exactly like it. The same thing. He saw the model in heaven. He made, made uh, the earthly one just like it. I think what's going on here, God has modeled the temple in some way to be a little replica of the heaven and the earth. In some way, this symbolizes the heaven and the earth. And we're going to have to see how that is. 
Now, Isaiah 66.1 says, quote, God speaking, Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? You see, God never intended that Israel's little localized temple would last forever. Since like the Eden temple, Israel's temple was but a small temporary model of something which was going to become much, much bigger. That is, God and His universal presence would eventually fill the earth. And it could never be contained eternally by an architectural structure. God's presence. I mean, it was sequestered temporarily back in that back room of the Holy of Holies, but not forever. It was eventually to come out. So Israel's temple was a miniature model of God's huge cosmic temple, which was to dominate the heavens and the earth. Another way to say that is that the temple was a model pointing not only to the present cosmos, not only symbolic of the present heavens and earth, but also of the coming new heavens and earth, which God's presence would fill at the end of time. Now, we have to ask, how in the world is that a model of the heavens and earth? So, let's go through that because it's very important when we come back to the book of Revelation. In fact, when we see Jesus coming along and how he relates to this. So... um, Let's talk about the temple for a moment and how it symbolized the heavens and the earth. Um, This this is now becoming almost commonplace in ancient Near Eastern uh, thought about Israel's temple. But it's not really, for example, most New Testament scholars still not that familiar with this. And some Old Testament scholars aren't. More more and more they're becoming familiar with it. But this is becoming more and more uh, accepted. I've heard a lot of uh, uh, allegory about the temple. And I'm going to try not to do that. Um, If I do, um, you can ask me in in the question and answer time. First of all, the Holy of Holies represented the invisible dimension of the creation. How did it do that? First, just as the angelic cherubim guard God's throne in the heavenly temple, the statuette cherubim around the Ark of the Covenant and the figures of the cherubim woven into the curtain that guards the Holy of Holies reflects the real cherubim in heaven who guard God's throne as uh, actually, uh, Isaiah 6 says with the seraphim and uh, Revelation chapter 4 says with the living beings. Secondly, the fact that no image of God is here, it's empty, designates that this represents the unseen heaven. The Holy of Holies, in fact, was the place where the heavenly dimension extended down to the earthly. We already talked about that. The Ark of the Covenant was seen as an ottoman. That Yahweh, sitting on his heavenly throne, would put his feet on. It was as part of his throne room. I can give you references uh, for the, the Ark of the Covenant as the Ottoman. Um, fourthly, the Holy of Holies was cordoned off by a separating curtain, which again indicates its separateness here from even the holy place, pointing to its uh, uh, invisible heavenly dimension separated from the physical dimension. Fifth, even the high priest couldn't see God in there. God's glorious presence was there, but the priest had to give a little, in, create an incense cloud on the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, so he, his eyes would, would be guarded because he's sinful like everybody else, and he would be struck dead. So again, you can't see it because it represents the heavenly realm. The holy place is right here. Now, what did that represent? Well, it doesn't look like it, but it represents... The heavens. You say, really? That's weird. Tell me how that's not allegory. Well, here we go. 
first. The curtains of the holy in the tabernacle and in the holy place were you don't get that here, but they were blue, purple, scarlet, and represented the variegated colors of the sky, many things. And there are figures of winged creatures that are woven throughout the curtains in the holy place. Again, enforcing the notion of uh, these winged creatures and the variegated uh, colors of the sky. Secondly, the lampstand had seven lamps on it. In Solomon's temple, there were ten lampstands. You had 70 lights. You look in there, and it, it, a little dark, and it, it looked like you were looking perhaps at stars. Um, in fact, this is why I have this here. This Hebrew word is me'or. And in Genesis 1, it talks about the greater light, the lesser light, and the me'orath, the lights, in Genesis 1. They're the stars, the sun, moon, and the stars. Guess what the lights on the top of the lampstand were called? Maor. Same word. I think it's more than coincidental. I think that the lights on top of the lampstand represented the light sources of heaven. Um, Thirdly, this symbolism uh, is likewise enhanced, perhaps, from statements elsewhere in Scripture. Isaiah 40 says, quote, that God stretches out the heavens like a curtain, spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He who has created the host of stars to hang in. You look in there, you see 70 stars within a tent-like structure, especially in the tabernacle, but perhaps somewhat even in the temple. And uh, uh, it looks like a little model of uh, God's heavenly cosmos. Psalm 19, 4-5 says that in the heaven God, quote, placed a tent for the sun. And intriguingly, both here in the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place, it was covered with gold. Floor, uh, ceiling, walls. Why? Well, we know in some of the ancient Near Eastern temples, especially in Egypt, they were covered in gold, especially because of the sun god in Egypt. They faced east as well there. When the sun rose and went into those Egyptian temples, just all kinds of light went out. It was amazing. It may be here that uh, in the true temple, uh, the true gods, uh, 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 starry, luminescent, is emphasized by the gold. Though in Israel's temple, it's not as Baroque as it was in Egypt's temple because they worshipped the sun god, so they just went overboard with dripping it with gold. And uh, it wasn't quite that way, of course, with Israel's temple because they didn't worship the sun. They, uh, they worshipped the god who created the sun. And probably because of what we're talking about here, uh, it's interesting that Josephus and Philo, they lived in the first century. They were first century Jews and commented on the Bible. They both agreed that the the lampstand, the lights on it, represented the seven uh, light sources uh, that the naked eye could see. The sun, the moon, and the five planets. The ancient naked eye. The courtyard out here. Probably represents the visible sea and earth. You say, really? You could have fooled me. Um, of course, we don't have anything. There's a bunch of stuff there. Uh, there are ten waist-high wash bowls. There's a huge uh, um, thing called the brazen sea here, and then a, an altar of burnt offering here. And um, I need to get a better overhead to show that. Um, the, the bronze sea uh, probably represented the seas. Uh, I mean, it was so high, you had to get a ladder to climb into it. It was probably symbolic. They never washed in it. They washed in the waist-high bowls. 
Um, the altar of burnt offering was to be an altar of earth uh, or an altar of uncut stone, according to Exodus. Um, in fact, uh, the altar in uh, uh, one place is identified with the mountain of God. And the, the tips of the altar, on, 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 on each end of the altar, it's a square thing, there are these tips that go up. Very interesting. And the word for the tips is the word for the tips of mountains elsewhere. I think we have these subtle notions. See, mountain of the earth, tips of the mountains, etc., etc. I think that the outer courtyard was uh, symbolic of the earth and the seas. And of course, all Israelites, male and female, could come here. So it's the place probably that represented where humanity dwelt. Um, So the cumulative effect of these observations is that Israel's temple served as a little earthly model of God's temple in heaven, which would eventually encompass the whole earth. In other words, why do we have that symbolism? I think it's because God's intention all along was never to remain sequestered back in the little back room of the Holy of Holies. All along, just as the original purpose is with Adam, he was always intending to burst forth through uh, the faithfulness of his people, cause his presence to fill the starry heavens and the earth. Um, now, I remember I, I was uh, part of a small church in New England, and um, we had to build. I mean, it was just a very tiny church. And I remember an architect made a little uh, um, a replica of what the church was going to look like. You know, it had the parking lot and had the... Uh, you know, the roof, and then part of the roof was off so you could see what the rooms and the sanctuary was going to look like. And nobody ever, as they walked in, nobody ever uh, said, uh, oh, isn't that architect a great model maker? The architect was not making that as a model in and of itself. He was making it as a small model that pointed to something bigger. And that's what Israel's temple is about. It's just a little model that God gave to Israel, and they should have discerned that it represented their role as a corporate Adam, because now they have been given the mantle of Adam. Adam, they've been given that Genesis 1:28 commission. And so, um, it's interesting that, that the Garden of Eden is actually applied to the land of Israel. Repeatedly, it's called the Garden of Eden. For example... In uh, Joel 2.3, Isaiah 51.3, Ezekiel 36.35. Why is that? Because they're replicating what Adam should have done. And then they fail, like Adam did. Interestingly, they fail at a mountain too. The golden calf episode that determines their sinful future. Um, They never carried out the great mandate to carry the light of God to the end of the earth. So God sends them into exile, out of the Garden of Eden, just as He had sent Adam. Then we come to, since we're lacking for time, uh, Christ and His followers are a temple in the new creation. What happened to God's promise that Israel would carry out the Adamic commission in Genesis 1.28 and expand the temple? Well, Christ is the temple toward which all earlier temples looked and which they anticipated. In fact, 2 Samuel 7 and Zechariah 6, uh, we could talk about this in discussion if you want, there it says the Messiah is to be the temple builder. Nobody else. You know, some people are looking for people to build a temple in Israel. Only the Messiah is the temple builder according to Scripture. Zechariah 6, Zechariah 4 as well, Second Samuel 7. Christ is the epitome of God's presence on earth as God incarnate, thus continuing the true form of the temple, which actually was a foreshadowing 
of Christ's presence all along. I mean, remember in John 1 that uh, uh, John says, the Word uh, became flesh and it tabernacled among us. And we beheld His glory. God's coming out of the Holy of Holies in Christ. For those who have ears to hear and eyes to see. And then in chapter 2, He follows it up with what? Tear this temple down in three days. I will rebuild it. Even in His ministry, He says, I am the place where forgiveness is found. Not any longer the sacrificial animals at the temple. He's taken over the role of He's the true temple, you see. By the way, why does Christ compare His resurrection with the rebuilding of the temple? Remember, I'll give you a clue, that in 2 Corinthians 5, and there's some other passages as well, but 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 17, Christ's resurrection is seen as the beginning of the new creation. It says, He died, we died. He rose, we've been raised. If anyone is in Christ, a new creation. Christ's resurrection is a new creation. Why does He compare His resurrection in John 2? Not with new creation, but with the temple. Remember the temple all along was a pointer toward God's presence filling the new creation. Jesus is the beginning of the new cosmos. So, of course, he's the beginning beginning temple as well. The temple was symbolic of that new coming cosmos, and Jesus is that temple, and he is that beginning new cosmos. There are some people who believe that there's going to be a temple built before uh, either Christ comes back or before the Antichrist in Israel. There's a lot of speculation. One hears rumors. I mean, I, I know of some Old Testament scholars who said they've actually been into a room where some of the Orthodox Jews are, actually have some of the equipment and furniture of the temple, just waiting for the temple to be built. Of course, there's a little problem. There's a mosque there, and uh, they would have to get rid of the mosque. But we've heard all kinds of rumors like this. I think to be looking for another architectural temple when Christ has already been identified with the temple. In fact, Hebrews uh, chapter 9 refers to the Old Testament tabernacle temple as the parabole temple. It's the word we get parable from. And in Hebrews um, 11, the word parable is used for type. In other words, the, the temple, according to Hebrews uh, 9, the physical temple in Israel was uh, the figurative temple. It was the parable and Hebrews 8 says that Jesus' resurrection and his, his existence in heaven is the true temple, as that extends down to us. It's the true, the Alethanos temple. We, once the type, the shadow, finds its substance, the substance is Christ. The temple pointed to Christ as the new creation. And once the shadow uh, is replaced by the substance, you don't go back to a shadow again. I remember when I was overseas... My first uh, year of uh, doctoral study, and I was writing uh, my, my wife-to-be. We'd just gone out for a few times for a week or two, and then I went to Cambridge. And we wrote back and forth all year while I was in Cambridge. And I remember I had a picture of her. She'd give me the only picture she had because it was pretty quick. I was leaving, and it had her brother in it. I had to cut him out. I got tired of looking at him. And... Um, uh, because when I read her letters, I, you know, just look at her, and I can't remember. I had a friend that this happened to. He hugged and kissed the picture, you know, of his wife to be when they were writing. I probably did that. Um, another reason I cut the brother out. I couldn't stand to have him around. But at any rate, um, so um, now this summer we're married. We will have been married 29 years. And if I was in our den and I was looking at that same picture and holding it, and hugging it. Um, um, my wife would be very concerned 
Because she would say, you know, you had the shadow, the substance here. The substance is here. She'd probably call one of the pastors at her church and say, my husband's been studying too much and, and he's gone back to the shadow and so forth and so on. And um, that's what it is to expect. When we've got the substance in Jesus Christ, the temple in the beginning of the new creation, everything the temple pointed to, why go back to the shadow? You don't reverse redemptive history. Well, um, we still have to get to Revelation. Um, now, of course, we know that Paul calls the church the temple of the living God. In 2 Corinthians 6 and 1 Corinthians 3, he says we're the temple. Why? Because when we identify with Jesus Christ, who is the temple, we become part of that temple. The Holy Spirit indwells us as that temple. Um, so, the mystery, then, let's come back to, to Revelation. How can John see a new heavens and earth in Revelation 21.1? And then in the rest of the vision... The whole rest of the vision, he sees only a city in the form of a holy of holies that's garden-like. Why? What's going on? The new heavens and earth are now described as a temple because it encompasses the whole earth because of the work of Christ. In fact, chapter 21 and verse 22 says, There was no longer a temple in it, structural, for the Lamb and God were the temple. Very clearly says it. And because of their... Presence, we who are identified with them, we form part of that temple. Um, and as their presence uh, uh, invades every nook and cranny of the new, whole new creation, the whole new creation is part of that temple. By the way, why? Where do we get city? He doesn't just see a, uh, a temple in a garden. And we've seen why temple and garden cover the whole earth. That was Adam's. Uh, role to have done that. Now the last Adam has finally done it. But why a city? Because in some of the prophecies we can address in discussion, uh, like Jeremiah 3 and Zechariah chapters 1 and 2, um, some other texts as well, they see that the Holy of Holies, in the end time, God's presence would burst out and would first cover Jerusalem. So if the Holy of Holies presence first covers Jerusalem, Jerusalem and temple become the same, and then the whole earth is covered with the presence of God. So that's why uh, Jerusalem is equated with temple, because eventually God's tabernacling presence will cover the temple as well. Um, that is, Jerusalem as well. It's interesting that um, it says that the whole city in 2118 of Revelation is covered with gold. Why would that be? Let me read it. 21.18, And the city was pure gold. Why? Remember the Holy of Holies, including the holy place, was all covered with gold. God's presence is broken out and filled the whole earth. So now you call the whole thing gold because God's intention of breaking out of His heavenly tabernacle in heaven and filling the whole earth has been fulfilled in, um, uh, at, at the end of time, according to this vision in the book of Revelation. How, how is the Old Testament being used here? Well, with regard to the temple in Genesis uh, chapter 2, the first garden temple, the idea is this, that all along Adam was to extend along with his progeny the sacred presence and glorious presence of God until it covered the earth. He was to expand the garden in that sense, both geographically and God's presence. He didn't do it. He didn't do what he was designed to do. Finally, we have 
the fulfillment of intended design here. Another way to talk about that perhaps is uh, Adam's failure to do this was a foreshadowing of the last Adam's success. Just as Romans 5 talks about the mirror images of the two. We as God's people have begun... By the way, notice it's not a tripartite temple anymore in the book of Revelation. It's a holy of holies. Why? Because you don't have separations anymore. The whole thing is the holy of holies. The holy of holies has encompassed the starry heavens and the sea and the earth. Everything is holy of holies. That's why it's all a square, you see. You don't need a tripartite division representing the three parts of the cosmos anymore because that's a fallen cosmos at that point. We as God's people have begun to be God's temple where His presence is manifested to the world and we're to extend the boundaries of the temple until Christ returns when finally the boundaries will be expanded worldwide. By the way, this may sound like post-millennialism. That is, that things are getting better and better. Uh, the, the expansion occurs invisibly. Okay, It occurs, it occurs invisibly uh, in the midst of a fallen culture. There's an advance. I'm an ironic post-millennialist, if you will, um, in the sense that the advance is invisible. It's not visible, whereas for a typical post-millennialist, it's very visible. So that Greg Bonson, I remember in a conversation with me, said that 51% of the world's population has to be saved, uh, and then you have the millennium and then Christ coming after that. Um, so we, we, are, we are priests in this temple. Now think about what priests do. Number one, we're mediators between God and humanity. We're priests. I mean, our role now is to be mediators between God and humanity. That's what a priest does in a temple. Whenever a person becomes a believer, we're expanding the presence of God. They're becoming a part of the temple. Um, what else do priests do? They pray. What else do they do? They teach, whether you know, in the temple or in our case, in the church or in the family. All of us, to one degree or another, are teachers, even though they're those who have the gift of teaching. We don't want to democratize that, in my opinion. Every gift is unique. But all of us, to one degree or another, will teach. Um, we sacrifice. But what do we sacrifice now? Romans 12, 1 says, we give ourselves as a sacrifice. It's interesting. You look up in Paul, wherever he talks about offerings and sacrifices, and how he's doing that. You know what's interesting? It's always in connection with the expansion of the gospel to the world and the Gentiles. Because he's a true priest in his Adamic, last Adamic temple doing what Adam should have done. It's beautiful. It all fits together, I think. Um, so, um, flip over pages here. Um, yeah, how do we... Of course, you become a part of the temple. I mean, maybe there's someone here who doesn't know the Lord. You become a part of the temple by believing that Christ died. He took the penalty of sin. So we wouldn't have to take it. He rose again in order that we would also be able to share in His righteousness. Declaring Himself to be the God-man. The Spirit comes in. The Spirit regenerates so that we then are able to believe. And how do we increase the presence of God in us that that presence may go out and affect others so that the temple may be expanded? Well... It's very simple, but um, maybe may very profound. We, we read the Bible, and we try to obey the Bible. And uh, what that really means is 
we begin to think God's thoughts after him. We become more in his image, not just speaking the gospel, but reflecting who he is. We, we mediate God's presence through our speech and our actions. So if you're impatient in the grocery line, that's not reflecting the glory of God. It seeps down into everything you see. Why didn't Adam and Eve do it? Because they didn't, they didn't remember the Word of God. That's why they didn't do what they should have done. Remember uh, that the command uh, that they were to remember, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely. What does Eve say when the serpent confronts her? We may eat. Downplays the privileges. And then the command goes on, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. And she says, not touch it. She becomes the first legalist. And then finally, she goes on and says, and you'll die. No, God said you'll die, die. You'll surely die. When the word goes down, the defenses go down, and we sin and fall, and uh, the word, the presence of God does not go out. And these are very basic things we're now talking about, aren't they? But the point is, we need to put them into a redemptive, historical, eschatological context. That's, what, that's the richness of it. This is not just a, a pietistic, oh, read the Bible and, 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 and let's apply it. No, we actually are at a certain time. We're the beginning of the inaugurated eschatological temple. We really are a temple. We're not just like a temple. I'd like to talk about that if we have time for discussion. We're not just like a temple. We are the temple. We really are. Because the essence of the temple was the presence of God breaking out, remember. It began to break out in Jesus. And continues to break out in us and He'll consummate it at the end. And so, uh, this is why He succeeded by knowing God's Word when the, 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 the devil tempts Him. In the temptation, in fact, uh, Luke presents him as an Adam figure there. He concludes the genealogy with the son of Adam. And then goes right into the temptation. Why? Because he's going through that temptation again. In fact, that's D-Day for Jesus. His D-Day is resurrection. Our D-Day is death and resurrection. Our B-Day is our final resurrection. Um, I'm at page 24. Let's see. I'll just conclude. Our task as a church is to be God's temple, so filled with His presence that we expand and fill the earth with that glorious presence. And I want to conclude with this. So it's a hymn that actually I I think uh, someone heard me give a sermon. This is actually a sermon, believe it or not, on this. And they wrote a hymn. And I want to conclude... Uh, uh, and I'll just uh, this, this will be our concluding prayer. Um, By grace, God makes a people, claims them for His own, lifts them up through Christ the Savior, Christ the cornerstone. By grace, God builds a people, His own temple pure, standing firm on one Redeemer, one foundation sure. By grace, God sends His Spirit. His Spirit and His Word to fill and fortify this temple built on Christ the Lord. By grace, Lord, let Your people stand, stand firm and sing praises to our Rock, our Savior, Christ, our coming King. By grace, Lord, let Your temple stretch from shore to shore built on Christ who comes to claim her His forevermore. Let's pray. Lord, give us grace to realize we really are the beginning of the end-time temple. We're not just like it. And cause us to know Your Word, think Your thoughts after You reflect Your image in our words, in our character, that we may be mediator, mediatorial priests 
functioning in the temple and expanding it to others. In Jesus' name, for your glory. Amen. Well, I went a little long. Sorry about that. But it was a summary of a 400-page book. So, I believe, I don't know if we should have uh, time for questions now or not. <laughs> the, um, okay, um, I'm happy for that. Um, if anybody wants to go to the microphone, uh, if you haven't fallen asleep, and um, ask me uh, any questions, you may feel free to do so. actually temples. <clears throat> well, first of all, if, if Jesus is really the, the beginning of the eschatological temple, in other words, he says, destroy this temple and I'll raise it in three days. Okay? Then, um, all of a sudden you get to Paul. And Paul assumes we're a temple. And not that we're just like a temple. Um, let me show you what I mean by that. Um, says in 2 Corinthians 16a, before b, he says, we are a temple of the living God. Then he says, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, I'll be their God, they'll be my people. Okay? This is a clear reference. You can look in your margins of most Bibles worth their salt. It'll say Leviticus 26 and Ezekiel 37. These are prophecies of the end time temple. Paul is saying, remember what he said just before this, the first of verse 16, we're the temple of the living God just as God said. I'll dwell among them and walk among them. This is a fulfillment of a temple prophecy. The nasty Gentiles who become believers in Corinth, they were pretty bad. If you've ever been to Corinth, you've got to go into one of the rooms of the museum and see the sexual body parts that they're praying about to their gods to heal them. They had venereal disease. They were, they were just sexually all over the place. They were, they were pretty bad. Well, we're pretty bad too today. Um, and so, but they're, Paul is saying they're really, they're really the... T- well, here's the question. Some would say they're like a temple. Where does it say fulfillment? Okay, these are eschatological prophecies, but where does it say fulfillment? So maybe we're just like a temple. Bill, you're making kind of a, boy, it's kind of a, a, a very uh, sleight of hand move. You're assuming that they're fulfilling the eschatological prophecy. Maybe it's just like. Well, here's the problem with that. Chapter 7 and verse 1. Therefore, having these promises, let us cleanse ourselves of all defilement of flesh and blood, completing holiness in the Lord. These are promises. That's, that's, that's really... Essentially, a fulfillment formula. Though not introductory, but concluding. In fact, it's an inclusio going all the way back to chapter 1. As many as may be the promises of God, they're yes in Jesus. 
Now, I still haven't answered your question. How are they a temple? But that they are, Paul sees them as the beginning of the eschatological temple. How so? Well, how is Jesus the beginning of the temple? His resurrection is the beginning of a new creation. And he is God beginning to break out of the Holy of Holies. And so it's that Holy of Holies presence in Jesus. And he began to be a temple in his lifetime. They killed him. You can't keep a good temple man down. It just went right on up into resurrection. When we identify with him, we share in that tabernacling presence. But here's a question. And that is, nowhere in the New Testament does it appear to say when the church commenced to be a temple. Paul just assumes they're a temple. It says when Jesus began to be a temple, but not the church. I think it's Acts 2. I can go on for two hours on Acts 2. I actually brought, brought my notes for Acts 2, but I won't do that to you. But um, uh, Acts 2, the Spirit comes down. This is just a little taste of what I would talk about. The idea of tongues of fire is found in Isaiah 5. It's found in Isaiah uh, 30. And it's found in some very, very early Jewish text alluding to the Isaiah text. And guess what tongues of fire is? God's tabernacling presence in heaven. It's a description of His theophonic presence in His temple. God's tongues of fire are building God's people into the temple in Acts chapter 2. It's His presence. So it's, 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 it's that tabernacling presence. Is that helpful? The same presence that would have been with Adam. Is that, is that presence? You know, it's... Excuse me, I'm sorry. I didn't catch that. We are a temple, but we're also a bride. A bride, okay. And so, you know, in the eschatological church, we're being presented not only as a temple, but as a spotless bride. And so I'm thinking, well, if we're going to be, if God is using these two terms to describe the eschatological church, aren't they still, isn't it going to be something different? We see each other now. No, in the sense of escalation. In the sense, I mean, there's going to come a time. See, nothing unclean, according to Revelation 21, 27, can enter. Nothing unclean. I mean, we're, we are not clean right now. Now, we're cleansed perfectly by the blood of Christ, but existentially. We're not. And here I'll make a, a very... And by the way, 21.2 of Revelation says the bride adorned. And then how is that defined? Verse 3, he hears God saying, I, I will tabernacle with my people. You say, what's, what's the bride? It's that intimate communion with the Lord in His presence. So it's, these, these things are definitely uh, two sides of one coin. Um, what was I saying though right before that? Thank you, thank you. We're not in the Holy of Holies now. Hebrews says that we've entered into the Holy of Holies through Jesus. 
He is our priestly representative. Just as the high priest would represent Israel in the Holy of Holies, but they weren't there. Jesus is the grander high priest. One will not come after him. He's the hopox. He's the once for all priest. And he is in the Holy of Holies, and we are there vicariously, as it were, through him. He's our representative. But we are not existentially there. The escalation is that we'll be existentially in his presence at the end. That's why Revelation 21, 22 ends with, we'll be in his face. With his name on our forehead. What's that mean? The name of Yahweh was on the forehead of the high priest when he went into the Holy of Holies. We'll all have that, that, that literally, I don't mean a pejorative, we'll be in his face and he'll be in our face. And it'll be beautiful. And, 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 and it'll be different from even the high priest because he had an incense cloud, no incense cloud. Does that make sense? Yeah, somebody had asked me that question, and, and I, I would say yes, that, that actually this, this was the consummation of their sin. That's what I would say. Because when she has forgotten, whether unintentionally or intentionally, whichever way it is, it was sin. It's got to be. Uh, so that, that would be my answer. I think it's, it's certainly the climactic consummation of their sin. I'm glad my lecture was so clear. Before I came here tonight, I was watching uh, uh, two of your favorites probably on television, um, Mr. Jenkins and, and uh, Mr. LaHaye. And they were talking about how that the Left Behind series that they, they have uh, capitalized on has, is coming to pass. And it seems like I turned on three different news channels and everybody's talking about Armageddon and World War III. And in this particular show, they were talking about the Battle of Megiddo. Um, how do you address, have you addressed dispensationalists who use that literal, to try to say there's a literal temple that's going to take place? Because this is a, this is a very real political reality currently. Mm-hmm. And we're at the, you know, we are at the verge of, of uh, possibly a World War III. Yeah. And my question to you is, I'm not going to ask you to predict anything, but how would, you, how would you explain this to people like Hal Lindsey or LaHaye or yeah. these other people I, um, and, and kind of pull, pull them out of that, what they consider, you know, that I'm, I'm literal, I'm being literal. You're, you're trying to... You know, you're building all this stuff together conjecturally yeah. and allegorically and whatnot. Yeah. So. Um, I don't know if you'll be here tomorrow, um, but tomorrow I'm going to talk about <clears throat> do you take the book of Revelation more literally or more figuratively and whichever way, why, 
Um, so I'm not going to re- say tonight what I, what I said there, um, except to say that, that really literal interpretation, I, I think everybody can agree on it to a certain extent. It's a, a referential statement, which means it's a statement that refers to reality. Now, that statement can be a figurative statement. Uh, dispensationalist or literalist believe there are figures of speech. And sometimes we agree where those figures of speech are. <clears throat> sometimes we disagree. I might say, well, that's figurative, and you say it's literal. What that means when they're saying it's literal really is what they're... They shouldn't say literal. They should say that the statement as it stands has a one-to-one relationship with reality. Because we all agree with literal interpretation. If you want to... I like to call it literary interpretation. Some things either have a one-to-one correspondence with reality. You know, I say, there's the door. Well, that means there really is a door there. But if you say, I'm the door, well, something else is going on. Um, So... um, I'm trying not to repeat what I anticipate what I'm going to say. Tomorrow, um, I I think one of the best things to do is uh, to come back to what I was just talking about, and I would give various examples. Let me let me just uh, of literal interpretation. I would say, okay, and you know, and I think it's very important. And I have very uh, very good friends who are scholars who are dispensational, and we get along great. And one reason we do is because we agree with the database that the Bible is inerrant. Um, in this postmodern culture, it's so affecting evangelicals that that you know the Scripture is inerrant. It's something that that's being lost sight of. But we have a good time also discussing as well my dispensational brethren and sistern. Um, but let me give you an example. I say, okay, you're taking this as literal. Okay, well. Let's take this. Seven one, which says having these promises about the eschatological temple. I said, I take that literally, but you take it figuratively. Right? They said, you only like a temple because the temple has got to be rebuilt, right? Physically? I said, no, it says we're the temple. Why are you taking why do you say we're like a temple? I'm saying we are a temple. And so I'll take a lot of passages like that and out literalize them. I mean so that's one. That's one angle of it. So you like literal? Okay, here's literal. Um, I, we can go to Second Corinthians um, in, in verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, new creation, old things have passed away, new things have come. Well, that is a specific allusion to Isaiah 43, 18, 19, Isaiah 65, 17, and 66, 22. And if you look at the wording, it is unique to only those passages in Isaiah and in um, 2 Corinthians 5. And it's part of that inclusio. Remember 120 and 7.1? Talking about as, as many as may be the promises of God, the yes in Jesus, or having these promises. New creation is one of them. And so again, I would say we really are the literal beginning of a new creation. But they would say, no, we're just like it because we know the new heavens and earth are not here physically yet. And I said, but Paul says we're a new creation, and he's, he's referring back to Isaiah. Isaiah's a prophecy. Paul is saying it's beginning now. What, what's going on? And they said, well, how can that be literal? And I would say, well, let me ask you a question. In the Old Testament prophecies, the resurrection, Daniel 12, 1, or Isaiah 26, etc., 
was, there was going to be a, a resurrection of a body. But was it only a body? I mean, was, were there going to be zombies walking around and resurrected? No, the Spirit's going to be resurrected too. John 5 says this, 24 and 25. Especially 25. An hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those hearing will live. Now. And a few verses later, it quotes Daniel 12.1. A time is coming when all will hear. An hour is coming when all will hear the voice of the Son of God. Some will come to resurrection of life, some will resurrection of judgment. In that first phrase, an hour is coming and now is, that's also an allusion to the same Daniel 12.1 text. Jesus is saying Daniel 12.1 is already and not yet. It's beginning spiritually. It'll be consummated physically. In other words, to say that we're spiritually fulfilling Daniel 12's resurrection prophecy is not spiritualizing. It's being literal. But what's happened is the prophecy is fulfilled in two stages. First, the spirit is raised, and at the end of the age, the body. But it's all very literal. And that's how I would explain the literal. Now, I don't think they would agree with me. Coming back to 2 Corinthians 5, new creation really is identified as being beginning resurrection there. So I would go to a number of texts. Let me give you one more. Isaiah 49.3. Now Isaiah 49.3, go home and read that all the way, verses 1 to 8. But 49.3 is a servant messianic prophecy. It's quoted in Luke 1, Acts 26, and applied to Jesus. That is chapter 49, verse 6 of Isaiah. But verse 3, still a part of that, describing the servant. It says, you are my servant, Israel. I was talking to a good friend of mine, graduate of MIT, Dallas Seminary, and he's stayed staunch dispensational. He's a little disappointed in me. And, uh, and we were talking in the car in front of a house oh, a few years ago. His name is Dave. I said, Dave, Isaiah 49.3. Let's literally interpret. I said, first of all, Dave, is that a messianic prophecy? Well, of course. 49.1-6. I said, okay, let's look at verse 3. You are my servant Israel. Literally interpret that. Is Jesus Israel? And he just, he, he, he couldn't come, he just, but he couldn't say, he, he just didn't say anything. All right? Now, if Jesus is Israel, when we identify with him, we become literally part of Israel. How? That's not a spiritualizing hermeneutic to say the church is true Israel. It's a legal hermeneutic. He represents us in the same way as he's the last Adam, we're little Adamites. He's Christos, we're Christianioi, according to Acts. We're little anointed ones. And so, he's Israel, we are Israel. But that's literal. Isaiah 49.3, Jesus is true Israel. Now, dispensationalists don't, they don't, they don't like that. Now, progressive dispensationalists, you, you, know, I, you never know. They're all, they, everybody kind of has a different definition among progressive dispensationalists. Some are very much like regular dispensationalists, and some are very much like me. Believe it or not, it's kind of strange. So, so that, that's one angle. Just go to a number of texts and show how, how literal you are and how figurative they are when they shouldn't be. Now, with the temple, I just go back. <clears throat> Hebrews 11 says, sorry, Hebrews 9 says that the tabernacle of the Old Testament was the figurative temple. It calls it the parabolic temple. Okay? It's from the word parable. It's the parabolic temple. And Hebrews 8 says that the temple that Jesus has established in himself and in heaven now 
is the alethanos, the true temple. He's now the substance replacing the shadow. You don't return to the shadows. You don't return to the... But that's what they would have to argue, that you do return to the... Not just will sacrifices be given again, but you have an architectural temple. The point is that all that the temple pointed to has begun fulfillment in Jesus and in the church. And to begin to go back... I mean, you could do it, but I don't think it's very consistent at all. And then we have to get in... Even in the book of Revelation temple always refers to the heavenly temple. Almost always. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about that tomorrow. The church is called lampstands, and, and, and that, that's referring to the church as a temple on earth being a light. Um, but we're part of that temple that extends down to earth. That's why that's the part of the temple on, on earth. But it's either in heaven or it's, it's on earth. But it's either people or it's in heaven. Not so, I mean, if we're going to be real literal about, you know, the, the notion of the temple there. And again, I just have to say, I think that expecting a temple to come in the future that's architectural um, is what I would call a redemptive historical hiccup that verges on severe heartburn. I was going to use a, more of a metaphor, but we've all just eaten. Um, so... Um, um, I, I, I think it's, you know, it's like me looking at the picture of my wife after we've been married. And the substance has come in Jesus Christ. Um, and, and let me remind you, if you want me to, I'll be happy to read it. Zechariah 4, Zechariah 6, 2 Samuel 7 says, The literal builder of the temple is the Messiah. They're talking about this temple being built way before Messiah comes. That's not literal. So, I mean, I would just, in various kinds of ways, try to point this out in addition to what I'm going to say tomorrow about what do we interpret Revelation more literally or more figuratively. Now, some people say, well, something's going on in Israel. I just talked to somebody. He's a dispensationalist. This guy was going down the prairie path. It's a walking trail. And this, this guy who works at Wheaton, where I teach, um, as a dispensationalist, so we're just—he's on his bike. He slows down, so we're just talking. We're talking about this whole issue, and um, he says, "But something's going on in Israel." I said, "I agree, and I think it's part of God's plan, but not as prophetic plans laid out in the Old Testament, uh, except in that um, Israel is, for the most part, in, in a stage of hardening." <clears throat> I think that'll continue until the end. I don't see a majority of Israel being saved at the end as some do because of Romans 11. I don't take Romans 11 that way. I'd be happy to talk about that at some other point. That's a, about an hour and a half uh, lecture as well. So, yeah. There may be some truth to that. Yeah, there may be. 
Well, according to my time, it's it's 11.15. (laughs) So if I haven't been altogether clear, I I, I give that as my excuse. 